blessings of being in a smaller church. Uh, we, as part of our missionary effort, um, we send me uh, to teach overseas a couple times a year. Uh, blessedly for me, that has been possi made possible through Zoom. COVID kind of opened that door, and by God's grace, it'll stay open because uh, it's made the uh, it made made it easier, especially for traveling uh, far over to to Asia. Uh, it's so much more comfortable to sit at my desk and uh, and go home to my bed at night uh, as teaching. Uh, we just finished a, a teaching in a in a country that you know we're just saying is a restricted area. Uh, this summer in August, I believe, I'll be uh, uh, doing a month-long course in Nepal, and that will um, that will be on world religions, and that's something that helps them. They live in a very uh, an area surrounded by com complex and very much uh, the primarily uh, Hinduism, but but some other challenges. But that will be this summer. But it's our way of equipping. Uh, the believers there uh, overseas, and that often is uh, one of the greatest needs. I've mentioned before that when I was, the first time I was in Nepal, the, the, the pastor who was also the president of the school there uh, said, um, we, we see these uh, Westerners coming and wanting to, to plant churches. He said, we're doing a great job planting churches, uh, and, and what we really, really need is training and equipping. And so, so that's our way of, of, of helping the, the ministry there. That's, that's part of our mission program. Um, this, this most recent one I, I taught through the, uh, the book of Romans. It was a rather intensive time, two weeks, 35 hours of training. And, uh, and as I did last time, uh, we're going to take a day, a, a service, and walk through the book that I taught. So it took me 35 hours to get through Romans I hope you're ready. Uh, sometimes we talk about, you know, getting a, like a, 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 a 30,000 foot view. We, that's something that people talk about, you know, like if you're up in an airplane looking down, kind of the big picture. Uh, we're going to try to take a view that's more sitting on the, the surface of the moon and looking down, trying to, trying to cover what is one of the greatest books. And if you had one book of the Bible to, to really to equip in some of the most fundamental and important aspects of, of truth. The book of Romans would be a place you would go. It was written, um, uh, shockingly, to the people in Rome, to the believers in Rome, to the church in Rome. In history, we don't know where that church came from. It, uh, it, Paul was the one who was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he had gone on missionary journeys, three missionary journeys by the time this is written, um, but he'd never, he'd never been to Rome, and there's no evidence that a, a, an apostle established that church. It points, the, the evidence points to back to the day of Pentecost. Remember when Jews from all over the world were in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the Feast of, of, of Weeks, and there um, is when God gave the Holy Spirit and Peter got up and, and spoke with boldness. But specifically, we're, to, we're told Jews from all over the world at that time were there and heard the gospel preached. Some apparently went back to Rome and spread the, the word among other Jews, and, and a Jewish and a primarily Jewish congregation of believers developed. They also shared the faith, and before you know it, some Gentiles were among them. But it was a primarily Jewish congregation. 
that changed dramatically when Emperor Claudius uh, gave an edict from about AD 41 to about AD uh, 50 where he said, uh, where he banned the Jews from Rome. Just said, all Jews out of Rome. And the parent, we're told from history, the problem was there were, there were actual fights and even riots. And, as, here's what one Roman historian says. He, the, the emperor, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. So apparently, believing, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, were, there were big conflicts over the issue of Christ. Uh, so Christ was making an impact in Rome, especially among the Jewish people. And so he said, well, we'll solve that. We'll just all you Jews get out of here. With that, the leftover Gentiles became the, the, the core of the church. And so by the time the Jews came back, it was, uh, maybe more of a, it was more of a Gentile church. But that whole, there were issues between Jews and Gentiles that will come up in this book. So Paul's writing this letter to them. They've not had apostolic direction. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he tells us in this letter that he's basically, he's reached Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's reached the regions of Macedonia and Achaia, or Greece, with the gospel. And, and as he's writing, he's writing from Corinth at the end, towards the end of his third missionary journey. And he's writing to them and saying, um, as, I continue, as he continues to expand his ministry, his eyes are set on Spain. Well, he doesn't have to establish a church in Rome, but he wants to come. He wants to go to Rome on the way to Spain, and there be an encouragement to them, kind of mutually edify, but also to ground them. He wants to he wants to explain to them uh, and and preach to them the gospel that he preaches everywhere he goes. So, in other words, he wants to make sure they get that good core foundation. Now, at the end of the book, he'll talk about several good people that are there already. But that's his intention. It doesn't work out quite that way. He goes, he finishes his tour of duty, uh, heads to Jerusalem. There he's arrested, spends two years in prison, appeals to Caesar, and, and, and he goes to Rome, but not as he intended on, on his way to Spain, but rather as a prisoner. And Book of Acts closes with him in, in chains in, in Rome, and he spent about two years there before being released. But this book is, is written... To, to this church in Rome to ground them in the essence of the faith. Um, you have in your bulletin a, a sort of a brief outline of the major points. And if you know me, to see a six-point sermon uh, puts the fear in you. But, and if I could walk through this, this is, this is the outline I'll follow. First is the salutation or greeting I, couldn't, I could have said greeting, but then I didn't have enough G's to fit the rest of the outline. Sin. He shows that all are guilty. So after he basically says hello, um, he then uh, lays out the problem of sin. He speaks of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 5, 11. He speaks of uh, sanctification or the, uh, the fruit of the gospel in chapter Five, verse 12 through chapter 8. He speaks of the sovereignty of God, especially with regard to Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And then service or the application of the gospel in verse, chapters 12 through 16. Now, 
if you need a three-point outline that's a little simpler, so a very, that was a simple outline. A very simple outline would be uh, sin in chapter 1 verse, through chapter 3, verse 20, salvation, chapter 3, 21 through 11, 36, and service, chapter 12 through chapter 16. That was the very simple outline. If you need an extremely simple outline, the gospel of salvation, chapters 1 to 11, the practical application of the gospel, chapters 12 through 16. I guess if you need a simpler outline, it would be the gospel. (laughs) He begins with his greeting, with his salutation. Again, this is a church. He has not been there. And some people might even say, why are you intruding here? And so he, he, first of all, he begins and speaks of, 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 of himself just as a servant of Christ. He's been an apostle appointed by Christ. But he focuses greatly uh, in, on Christ as he speaks in, in the opening verses of Roman. Paul, a bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So he's emphasizing he is God's apostle, which means he speaks as God's messenger with his authority. And he, and, he, and he writes to them and speaks of, of the gospel in particular. And in verses 7 to 15, he, he, he speaks directly to the Romans and, and his joy. See, the, world had, was, the word was spreading. God is doing a mighty work in Rome. There is a vibrant church in Rome that is being greatly used of God. Here was the capital in the, in the shadow of the emperor. The gospel was going forth in power. And so he, he says, I, I, we're hearing good news. And the church is encouraged. I think it, that reminds us, I think, when we, when we hear of what God is doing in parts of the world, we should be praying. Pray for situations that need God's grace. Pray for our brethren that are having difficult times. And praying with joy when we hear the gospel bearing plenteous fruit as it was in Rome. So, so he says, I'm so excited about, to hear what's happening. But he says, I'd like to come and and speak to you of the gospel. Verses uh, 16, 17, 18, Paul gives his theme, if you will, or verses 16 and 17 in particular. He says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When he says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's a figure of speech called litotes. And basically, it's, 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 under, it's understatement. A friend calls and says, I bought a new car I'd like you to look at, just something I picked up at the lot today. And so you go outside and you hear the roar and see this bright red, brand new Lamborghini. He said, nice wheels. You know, that's understatement. <laughs> you know, you, you don't want to drool in front of their car. So, but, but, but that's what he's saying, understatement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I glory in the gospel. It's God's power of salvation. This is how God saves people. And he says the gospel is, is from faith to faith. What he means by that is uh, it, it isn't broadcast on billboards in heaven. The gospel goes from one believer to the next, and, and it goes from faith to faith. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a 
to preach a series of sermons on Romans and, and in the, the commentaries written from that. He said this, in other words, God does not speak to you directly from heaven, but he comes out of the faith of one heart into the faith of another. The righteousness of God is communicated to me out of the testimony of another man's faith into the receptivity of my faith. So he's not ashamed of the gospel, but he, he emphasizes it's God's power from faith to faith. And he emphasizes that later. How will they believe unless they've heard? And emphasizing to us the need to share what we have received to others. Well, when he says you need salvation, rescue, a natural question would be, from what? You know, I, you know if you come up and say, I have, the answer to your, I have the answer to your problems. What problems? And so he explains that in chapter 3. 1 verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 verse 20 and it's a simple word sin in verse chapter 1 verse 18 he explains again why is the gospel so necessary for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness that is a very broad statement he's making God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he says, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What he basically is saying is all mankind is found guilty before God because they know the truth and they bury it. They suppress it. They reject it. What do you mean they know the truth? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What truth? Chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, he says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What he's saying is, man knows there's a God and knows a lot about him. His power, his wisdom, his beauty, his kindness, sending rain when we need it, sending sun when we need it. He's, there's so much we can see. And, and if you're denying God, if you're, if you're worshiping birds and beetles and whatever else it may be, you're suppressing the truth in rebellion, in unrighteousness. And so all of mankind is guilty. The gospel is not revealed in creation. The creation doesn't give enough information to save but it does give enough information to condemn. And so man is guilty because in his heart he knows there's a God. I often use the illustration. Um, one time I was listening to one of my professors uh, at Berkeley. It was a parasitology class, and he was talking to someone after class, and, and, and he just scoffed at the idea that there's a God because if there, he, he did not like the idea that there's a God to whom we had to give an account. And I thought, that's the issue, isn't it? That's the issue. You don't want to have to be accountable to a God. And so you deny God, or you make gods that you can placate with, I'll give you this gift, and you give me that gift, and that's the idols that they worship. The rest of the chapter 1 shows what happens when the Gentiles reject God's grace and truth. He judicially gives them over to the sin in their heart. He doesn't make them sin, but he removes his restraint and surrenders them to what's already in their heart. 
It's a very dark uh, area of sin that astonishingly is more and more a picture of life today in, in, our, in our culture and in our society. But Barnhouse, again, he makes this good statement. He says, the last nine verses in this first chapter of Romans are the most terrible in the Bible. This is the description of mankind abandoned by God and the scene is a frightful one. I'm teaching Romans and reading the newspapers lately and just seeing where we are going. This, it is. You know, some people say, wow, if we give ourselves over to such sins, God's going to judge us. No, no, no. That our culture is surrendering to such sin is the evidence that we, be, we are being given over. We are being given over. Instead of man saying to God, thy will be done, God is saying to man, thy will be done. Have it your way. And surrenders them to their sin. In chapters, two, so, so chapter one, he's, he's, he's emphasizing the Gentiles' guilt. And it speaks of their idolatry and, 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 and terrible immorality. In chapters three, Two, chapter 2, verse to 320. So almost to the end of chapter 3, Paul then turns his guns, if you will, on the Jews. Because they might say, uh, we don't worship idols. They had a terrible problem with idolatry. Uh, that's why the Assyrian captivity, that's why the Babylonian captivity. But the Jews today will tell you it was the Babylonian captivity that, that banished idolatry. You just don't see an idolatry problem of, of worshiping images uh, after the Babylonian captivity. But you do see sin. You see setting up idols in their hearts of, God, of a God who is not the God of the Bible. He, so he shows uh, the, the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of the Jew in chapters 2 and 3. And to make his point even stronger, in, in chapter 3, verse 9 to 18, um, Paul pull, pulls out a machine gun, if you will, and starts blasting away quotes from the Old Testament. One after another after another. Psalm 14, Psalm 4, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm 35. He quotes these, all these Old Testament passages that the Jewish people would know well, and they all point to the sinfulness of man. And then he makes a point. And what the Scripture says, it says to the people of the book, it's describing God's people when it says these are their sins. So by the time we, we get to that, he has shown that Jew and Gentile are, are alike sinful. That's important. One, the Jews would often say, well, we didn't descend into, idolatry is not our problem. We have a higher moral standard than the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews would even claim that many of the rabbis would say, well, well, well no, no Jew will go to, to hell. There's even a, one rabbi talks about that, that Abraham will sit at the door of, of hell and if any uh, circumcised Jew were to come to, he'd say, go, no, you go to heaven, you don't go here. Just, just because they're Jews. And Paul just devastates that and says, not on your life, read your Bible. Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before God. That's the bad news. And so he, he, he shows man's need He's by showing man's guilt. 
I think that's an important reminder to us when we're sharing the gospel and understanding the gospel. The gospel is not just making us nice people. The gospel is not showing us God's, just showing that God is love. Someone to say, well, Jesus didn't die to pay for our sin. He, he, he died on the cross to show us God's love. He, he, uh, but, but, but how? Why? No, the Bible is clear. The central issue of the gospel is sin, man's guilt before God. And I won't get to go into all that, but there's many a theologian today that's trying to, to soft-pedal that and, and to back-pedal there and say, well, that's not the real issue. The issue is not sin and punishment. It's, it's, it's reconciliation to a God of, of love. You know, Paul, God, Paul spends these early chapters just hammering away to show us that all man is guilty before God, all of mankind, without exception. And therefore, all of mankind needs the gospel. But having devastated us and shown us our guilt and our hopelessness, there's no hope in ourselves. In chapter 3, verse 21 to 511, he, he unfolds God's provision, salvation by grace through faith. Let me read uh, chapter twenty-one, uh, chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-six. But now, he's shown us got man's sinfulness. Now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I always love that last phrase, that he might be just and the justifier. A judge, you know, we, have, we, we hear about this sometimes in the news today, the, the judicial system that will not punish the guilty. We hear violent criminals being put out back on the street and, and with, with meaningless sentencing and meaningless penalty, and it, and it drives us crazy. Where's the justice in that? We can't respect a justice that doesn't punish guilt and crime. So how can God be just and justifier? He can be just and still justify man because he takes on himself the penalty of the crime. And so he can be just, requiring punishment for sin and the justifier declaring to be righteous those who come to him through faith. One of the terms I read in there is one of those terms that we, um, we, we probably don't use one, once a week, propitiation. Uh, it's, it's a hard one to even pronounce sometimes, and it's a hard one to get out. Basically, it means to satisfy the demands of God's righteousness, to satisfy the demands of God's justice and wrath. The word propitiation is related to the Greek translation for the word for the mercy seat. Remember in, back in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place of God's manifest Shekinah glory. There, beneath God's Shekinah glory, is the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the Ark of the Covenant because Ark means box, and inside that box are the Ten Commandments, the, 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 
that God wrote. God's, and that summarizes the demands of God's law. So hovering over that, those, the Ten Commandments, God's law, is God's holy presence. Looking down on that box with God's law are two images of, of cherubim. The cherubs, cherubim, were guardians of God's holiness. So here is the holy God and the guardians of his holiness. There is God's holy law that is being constantly broken. And so what, what comes between God's holiness and God's law is what's called the mercy seat. It's related to the word propitiation. That is where the high priest once a year goes and puts the blood of the atonement so that God can look down on his holy law and see that the demands of his justice and righteousness have been met. Well, that's just a picture of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation of God, propitiation by his blood. In uh, verses 29 to 40, Paul demonstrates that salvation by grace through faith is the opposite of works. See, everybody, uh, today more and more people seem to believe there's some kind of an afterlife. And their thought is that if you try, you know, you, you can get there. You can do enough good works, be a nice enough person, whatever it might be. But somehow, matter of fact, most people basically try and say everybody's going there except for two or three people that have been really bad. My landlord, the... Uh, <laughs> uh, but on what basis? On what basis? Not by works. See, man wants... Every religion around the world says some, that however they describe the, the, the good at part of the afterlife, um, it's, it's, you get there by works. You get there by your effort. You earn it. And Paul demonstrates in verses 29 to 40 that salvation by grace is the opposite of works. If it's grace, that means it's a gift. A gift is the opposite of wages or work or earning. And so he keeps emphasizing it's, a, it's God's gift. It's a grace that is received by faith. It's not something you do to earn. And even within the history of Christianity, there are those who have sought to, um, to change that up, that somehow it's through works we merit God's approval. We earn his uh, salvation. You know, it's, it's grace. It's a gift received. Christ does the work. Well, all through the Old Testament, there was emphasis on obedience to God's law. And throughout the rabbinic system, throughout the rabbis teach, salvation is, is a works system. Uh, one of the things is when I teach world religions, and I'll talk about the Jews, uh, I found one rabbi who expresses it well. The Jews really don't talk too much about the afterlife. In the you know, they, they emphasize more just obey, obedience to the law here and now. But they say if, you're, if they're pressed, yes. They'll talk about the afterlife and how do you get to the afterlife? By good works. You merit it. You earn it. So some might be wondering when Paul is saying all these things, Paul, is, is this a new doctrine? Are you throwing out the Old Testament and the law? Listen to how he begins 
uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. So Paul, in chapter 4, goes to two examples. Abraham, pre-law. David, post-law. Abraham, pre-Moses. David, after Moses. And shows in both cases, their salvation was by grace through faith. And so he begins, did Abraham earn salvation? Was it his good deeds? If it's his good deeds, then we have grounds to boast. And Paul, you'll notice Paul talks about that a lot. If, if salvation is by works, then we can boast in what we've accomplished. Can you imagine, uh, you know, being in, in heaven and everyone is walking around saying what a good job they did? No, we're all going to be just stunned and amazed at grace. I think it's been said that there's three different things that will surprise us in heaven. We'll be surprised by some who aren't there. We'll be by, surprised by some who are there. But the greatest surprise of heaven will be that we're there. There's no boasting. That would devastate God's glory that we somehow think we earned it, we deserve it. And what does that say to the cross? Well, that's a gift. It's, it's, it's received by grace. But that's, that's not new. And so he goes back to Abraham. And, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. What does the scripture say? He says in verse 3 of chapter 4. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted him to righteousness. Well, and, and to the Jewish people, circumcision is the, 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 uh, the mark of, of the covenant faithfulness. And so he points out, that doesn't come until chapter 17. Abraham is declared righteous before circumcision was required by God. Before that, it's not circumcision, it's not the law, it's faith. And then he goes to David, the great hero of the faith, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So you get two of the giants of the faith, Abraham and David. And they both agree. Salvation is by grace through faith. So this isn't some new doctrine. We're getting back to the truth. And that's why when we think of Judaism today, we maybe should see you know, rabbinic ideas. This is, they, they're not faithfully teaching the Bible. They've turned it into a works religion like everyone else does. Well, then in chapter 5, Paul kind of brings this section on the gospel, uh, by, salvation by grace through faith, by uh, speaking of the fruit. It's peace with God in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of glory. So we have peace with God. We're no longer standing before God as judge. We're standing before him as Abba, Father. 
but we also have the peace of God in chapter 5 of Romans, verses 3, and five, 3 to 5. Not only that, we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And so he says, because of our relationship to God through the, through the gospel, we have peace and hope in the midst of hardness. And in fact, we take times of tribulation and difficulty as an opportunity to grow in grace. Paul was a tent maker, but on the side he had also created a t-shirt business, and he was the first one to say, no pain, no gain. And we, we found the actual t-shirt. No, <laughs> but, but the point is, that's what he's saying here. When we know, some, sometimes people wrestle with, why am I going through this hard time? Is God punishing me? Do I have to earn his salvation? No, this is, my, this is my, from my father. And if my father's requiring this of me, this is, he's, he wants to grow me through it. He wants to strengthen me through it. He wants to stretch me. He wants to deepen my roots in him. So don't resent it, but be thankful. And so often when I think about that, I read a biography of a, of a man who uh, it was a Navy SEAL, uh, he came to faith during that time in the SEALs, but he talked about in his early days when he'd, he'd gone into the Navy, all, all along he was planning to be a SEAL. You know, this, we, this, this is the plan. And so when they went through all the basic training and all the exercises and all the demands, when everyone else is groaning, he, he had a big smile on his face, which you can imagine really frustrated the ones who were trying to, to break them down. But he had this big grin on his face, and they said, what are you smiling about? He said, this is how I'm going to become a SEAL. And he, he, he knew the pain, he knew the hardship was getting him to the goal. We need to have that heart when you go through the hard times. This is coming from my Father's hand. I can grow, I can deepen, I can be strengthened. Abba, give me the ability to do that. Well, then he talks about uh, our, the fruits of our union with Christ. And that's in chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through chapter 8. In chapter 5, it's, it's one of the most challenging passages and important passages of the Bible as far as our, our, our union with Adam and showing how sin entered the world through Adam. And through Adam, we all share in his guilt. And I remember hearing that, I think it was Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, used to say that you could tell a true theologian his Greek New Testament opened to Romans 5. Uh, there's a lot in here about how, why are we sinners? It's Adam. It's, he was the head of the race. And when he sinned, he brought sin and death into our experience. He spends time developing that at the end of chapter 5 so that he can then in chapter 6 say, and in like manner, those who are in Christ share in the benefits that are in Christ. Those who are in Adam, that's every human being born, shares in the curse with Adam. Those who are in Christ, those who trust in him as Savior, share in the blessings of being you in Christ. And so if you read Paul's New Testament epistles, again and again you'll see that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Our union with Christ identifies us. And our union with Christ enables us and blesses us. So in chapter 6, he talks about that union with Christ 
and, and emphasizes it was accomplished, we were put into union with Christ as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, Paul talks about our baptism into the Spirit. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We've all been made to drink into one Spirit. Um, and in Romans 6, he talks about the fact that we were baptized into Christ's death and baptized into his resurrection. The Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ, we share in his death, death to sin. And his point in, in this section is not just the penalty of sin, that's chapter 3. No, from the, the power of sin. Adam not only brought us guilt, he brought us bondage. We are in the shackles of sin until we meet Christ and are liberated. And so Paul's point is, Christ rescued you from the slavery of sin. Why do you go and volunteer to your former slave master? Run from him. Run to your new master, Jesus Christ. And so he, he talks about our union with Christ. So often, you know, we, we, we think in terms of sin as far as, you know, punishment. Can I get away with that sort of thing? We've been united to Christ. When I sin, I'm drawing him into my sin. And I don't need to sin. I shared with the students uh, four statements that go back to the early church, or early church fathers. There's four uh, states of man. It could be expressed that way. The first state is man was able to sin. Adam was able to sin. Before the fall, he was sinless but able to sin. After the fall, man was unable not to sin. So, so from being sin an option, which Adam took, once the fall, we are sinners by nature. We're slaves to sin. We must sin. In Christ, the Christian is able not to sin. And in glory, we will not be able to sin. And that's one thing I'm greatly anticipating with joy. But he's talking about our union with Christ and what that means. In chapter 7, verses 13 to 25, Paul gives his testimony. Now, people like to you know, get into theological and exegetical scraps, and this is one of the passages is Paul talking about here, it's, it's, it's biographical. Is he speaking of himself before salvation or after salvation? Well, it's clear he's talking about his, himself as a believer uh, because he says, in my heart I want to do what's right. But he also says in, in the unbeliever's heart doesn't seek to do what's right. So he's talking about that, but he says, um, we struggle. Verse uh, 14 of chapter 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. What I'm doing, I do not understand. What I will to do, I do not practice, but I, what I hate, I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he's talking about that. Here's the problem. He's describing life as a believer. We struggle with sin. Because although its shackles have been broken, sin is a part of, it, it, we have indwelling sin until glory. That's one of the, again, the glories of heaven. That is finally gone. Never a sinful 
word, a sinful thought, a sinful inclination, it's gone. But that's not till glory. Some denominations and groups will say, oh yeah, when you trust Christ and really dedicate yourself, the sin is eradicated. Follow them around for two weeks and tell me if the sin is truly absent from their life. No, it's, it's, but Paul describes here an honest battle. What I want to do, I don't do. And I do what I don't want to do. One encouragement in one sense, the Apostle Paul battles with sin. Until glory, we struggle and fail and disappoint ourselves in God. I may, I'm going to read a story from S. Lewis Johnson. Well, I'll just, just narrow, I'll narrow it down. There was a preacher who, who liked to play golf. And, and, and one time he went out and, and, and was playing golf and he, uh, he got up to his paw and he pulled out the club that he thought he'd reached the green with and settled himself down into his position. He drew back and shanked it off into the trees over to the right. And he jumped up and down and screaming, Romans 7.15, Romans 7.15. Well, the guy that was playing with him thought, well, that's an interesting way of ex- expressing your frustration. I- I've got to find out what that means. And he went home and read Romans 7.15. I don't understand my actions, so I do not what I want, and I do the very thing that I hate. <laughs> that's, that's the Christian life. And sometimes when we talk about, you know, uh, you know come to Christ, well, we don't have to, you know, unload the whole package, but we need to be honest. You're getting into a fight. It's going to be a struggle. But God's grace is sufficient. In chapter 8, uh, uh, Paul talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who, who enables and empowers us to live for righteousness. Those who live according to the flesh uh, are, are, are on the way to death, but those who live according to the Spirit uh, do the things of the Spirit. And he talks about the fact that you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So every believer has the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who enables us to do what is right. He talks about how the world, even all creation, struggles but looks forward to glory. And Paul closes chapter 8 with that wonderful passage about you know, we can do all things through, I mean, that, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And he speaks about who can bring a charge against God's elect. And, and he just speaks with greatness of the mercy of God toward us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. With that, he closes his section on the gospel. But then there's this problem. You've talked about nothing can separate us from God. Aren't the Jews, weren't they God's people? Hasn't God rejected them? And if God has rejected the Jewish people, his people, what's to keep him from rejecting us? And Paul says, you're mistaken. God has not cast off the Jews. And Paul, in chapters 9 to 11, develops the concept that that God's going to keep his promises. He says, um, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. There 
not all Israel who are of Israel. And he talks about the fact the elect of Israel are faithful. And he gives the example of Elijah talking about, you know, God, I'm all alone. And God says, no, you're not. I, I have a remnant of those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so what Paul argues in these passages is that that God has a remnant in every generation. In every generation, there will be believing Jews because God promised the nation of Israel will not disappear. And so God is keeping a remnant. And, and he talks about in there uh, some important passages about um, the doctrine of election and how God chooses some to be his. But the key is that God has not rejected Israel. He has a plan for them and yet, for a time, uh, he says, you can rejoice that God has set them aside in a sense, not fully, but it, this is the door opening for the Gentiles. But the time is coming when the Gentile door, the Gentile will be, number will be complete. God will turn back to Israel and bring Israel to himself. So he talks about the fact there is a coming uh, time when the nation will come to faith in Christ as a whole. When I say as a whole, There'll be, just as there's a, not, Israel is in unbelief, but not all Israel. Israel will be in belief, but not all Israel. But all, the true Israel, the Israel of God, will be in abundance in the end times before the return of Christ. And Paul closes chapter 11 with the words, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So as he contemplated God's grace, it's amazing. That'd make a good song, wouldn't it? In chapters 12 to 16, he talks about the application. If you read Paul's epistles so often, the early chapters, doctrine. And then you can spot, therefore, you know, therefore, because of all this truth, therefore, this is how you should live. And in chapter 12, he says, you know, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to the God. So he talks about giving ourselves to be servants of Christ. And then in the next few verses of chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and serving one another. And then he speaks, too, about the issues of, 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 of conflict within the, and, and, and finding reconciliation with one another. Chapters 13, verses 1 to 7, is, was the passage I dreaded teaching. A lot of times there's, there's books of the Bible that... Uh, I have to figure out what am I going to do with that section or that's what makes me nervous about that book. It was chapter 13 that gave me real, when I was asked to teach Romans, I thought, but what about chapter 13? Chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul talks about uh, submission to government authority. In case you haven't noticed, our government is not perfect. But we still have a lot of freedom that isn't in other parts of the world. What am I going to say to my brothers and sisters who live under such restriction and so many prohibitions? And yet there it is in the Bible. And so I made a point. We, 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 we teach 50 minutes, 10-minute break, 50 minutes, 10-minute break, 50 minutes, 10-minute break, and then question and answer. And I always would kind of back and forth. Any questions you get in this? For chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, I taught for the two hours, 
no interruptions, no questions. And I laid out for them what Romans 13 teaches. And I dealt also with, and I, and I, and I showed that principle throughout Scripture. Um, that, that this was God's principle of, that we are to obey authority. That God ordains authority. Authority comes from God. But then I said, what happens, what do we do when our governing authority ordained by God tells us to disobey God, what then? And so I took them through passages that showed that. How the apostles in Romans 4, I love when they were told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. I love that. Speaking to these religious leaders, okay, you tell me, do I listen to you or God? Who am I going to obey? I'll give you a hint. It's not you. And later on, same thing. Uh, Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And then I, but then I walked through the examples of, of Daniel um, and, and his, his issues. And he ended up in the lion's head because he was commanded to pray to the, the king instead of God. Lion's den. Uh, or, or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bow before the image. We don't. God delivered them to show that he honored that. I use the example of the Egyptian midwives who, who would not obey Pharaoh. And so I gave them those ex examples of, of how to think through things. And then came the hour, so what do you think? And I could not believe the response. Their faces were radiant as they ag agreed, God, you have shown us the government is appointed by God and has God's authority. And you have shown us the balance. And, and, and I could just sense that this was going to become, go back as a, a sermon or two in some of the churches. But these brothers and sisters radiantly embraced what I consider to be hard truth with, without, a, without a hesitation, with joy, uh, they embraced it. And then they, we talked a little bit about what that looked like in their lives. And, um, but I, I, I honor their courage and was humbled by it. After chapter 13, chapters 14 and 15, Paul talks about issues in, in Rome over issues about what do you eat. Remember I said it was originally a Jewish congregation. They were banished from Rome. It became a Gentile congregation. Then the Jews came back, and it was a different place. Um, and, and there were issues going on. You can just hear it. Um, Avram saying to Thucydides, are you telling me you're going to have ham for Easter? You know, uh, some of the questions about what do we eat, that's, it, was, it was the kosher issues. And so these uh, Jewish brethren, I, I, you know, I know we're free in Christ, but bacon? I, I can't do it. Uh, you remember, and so that's why you see they only eat vegetables. That's what Daniel's strategy was when he was in Babylon. So that was what was going on, I believe, was the, the back and forth. What about the Sabbath and those sorts of issues? And so, um, so Paul talks about and emphasizes the fact that um, we're, we, we, we not judge one another, leave that to the Lord. We're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. Let him be the judge. Chapter 14, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. 
Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The last chapter, 16, uh, Paul deals with a lot of personal uh, statements. First of all, he introduces to them a sister named uh, Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe is a servant, he says, of the Christ in Sancria. And he says, receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. She's been a helper of many and myself. She's apparently the one who brought the epistle of Romans. And so he's, he's, he's giving his endorsement to her. She was apparently a woman of, of means and status, and she was coming to Rome on business, and she brought the letter with her in her briefcase. And so he said, she's a trusted sister. Be a blessing to her. And I think of Phoebe. I cannot imagine the terror of being entrusted with the only copy of the book of Romans. The poor dear did not sleep for a minute on shipboard. Anyone that approached on the road, she probably clutched that thing tightly, but by God's grace she got it. And I think too, can you imagine when the word is, uh, Phoebe's going to Rome, she's going to bring an epistle from Paul. You can imagine the word spreading there in Corinth. Another book of the Bible? And I, I can imagine running into the room and just listening to him dictating it thinking, oh, God is doing a mighty thing. I, I bumped into this when I was in, in Jerusalem one time. I, I like to hang around the, uh, the Hasidic re, uh, neighborhood, and, the, and I just wandered around to just watch and learn. One time there was a crowd gathering in a house, and so I do what you do when you see a crowd gathering in a house. I pushed into the house. <laughs> to my amazement, there was a Torah scroll spread out on the table. It was just about to be finished, and different ones were being honored by being allowed to fill in one letter. The scribe had, had outlined it, but they had the privilege of, of and, and, and so it was a sacred and beautiful moment happening. And that is what I have the picture. Can you imagine them crowding in the room? Paul, we get to hear it first. Paul is giving scripture. He's, he greets several that are there in Rome by name. Some of them are Jews. He calls them my kinsmen. Um, he greets various ones. I think the whole point being to, to show I have a connection with you people. If you're not sure who this apostle is, ask these people. They know me. Uh, we've served together. We've suffered together. It says some as my fellow prisoners. And so, um, so he, he sends that. And then, he, then he sends greetings um, from those who are with him. So-and-so sends you greetings. So-and-so. I like apparently he, apparently he tells the scribe Tertius uh, to, and, and, and Tertius says, I, this is Tertius. I, I'm the one writing this. That's a trick question next time you play Bible trivia. Who wrote the book of Romans? Tertius. That'll get a strange look from your friends. Who's Tertius? Um, which, by the way, means third. So we're not sure if the parents were getting tired of coming up with names um, or if sometimes slaves, so you're one, you're two, you're three. But he, he's, so maybe he's the one that came up with that billboard idea. I'm, I'm third. Um, but, but he, he, he makes it on a personal basis. And at the end of all, uh, and I'd just like to read the closing verses, is his prayer of blessing on them. Romans chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been manifest, made manifest 
and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Having shared his message, having brought it back on a personal level, he closes where the focus belongs. To the everlasting God, God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Father, we say the same. To you be the glory. To you be the, the praise and thanksgiving, not just for the message of the gospel, but the, the reality of the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid for our sins, that we might have life eternal. Thank you, Father for the privilege of being your children by grace through faith. Thank you, Father, for being the, for the privilege that from our faith we may share to others. May we be found faithful in that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.